Morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany here in the sanctuary, also across the street and also online. It's a joy to be with you, and it's a, it's a joy to return, having been away for a few weeks traveling, uh, teaching in Germany and Austria. Uh, there's a rhythm to that for me every year, and every year it's the same where uh, as I'm leaving, I don't want to go. Once I'm on the plane, I'm excited about what I do. That it's a joy being there. And then as soon as I'm done teaching, I'm eager to get home and to be with you. So it's good to be back together. Let's take a moment. We'll pray. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 11. Father, I'd like to thank you that we, as we gather within these walls, there's a, there's a text that is more than words. It's a revelation of your heart, the heart of the creator of the universe. Uh, and it, not just your heart, but your heart for us as your people. And I pray, Father, that we'd hear your voice this morning in the midst of these words, and that we not only hear your voice, Father, but that you would guide us to steps and vision to be people of hope in our, in our city and in our world. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at Isaiah chapter 11, and there's a, there's a mysterious verse in uh, Isaiah 11, 6, about the wolf and lamb dwelling together, and it makes it sound like... Uh, the wolf will become a vegetarian, basically, and, and no longer eat lambs. And there's some biological problems with this, possibly, and there's a scientist sitting in the second row, and that makes it very difficult for me to know exactly how to address these things. But I am going to begin by talking a little bit about science, because we are... Science has evolved over the centuries, and much of our faith has been wed to the worldview offered to us scientifically, and for at least 500 years, really, there was a prevailing kind of Newtonian view of the universe that would declare, really, that everything is fixed and has boundaries, each object has a limit to it, it's, it's, this is this and that is that, and there's a barrier between them, uh, and, and kind of wed with this, at least chronologically, is Darwinianism and the notion that the strong survive at the expense of the weak, and there's even a phrase survival of the fittest, that leads to kind of this understanding of the world as a, a world of predatory and prey relationships, right? And so I, can, I win because you lose kind of thing. But uh, there's a different view of the world that is emerging that is much closer to Isaiah 11.6 and the wolf dwelling with the lamb, as we'll see. I was on a flight some years ago with a physicist and we were sharing uh, uh, our seats next to each other and the whole time I was peppering him with questions because he was going down to California to lecture on quantum physics. So if you ever want to have fun on a flight with a physicist, just if you find out they're a, a physicist, ask them the question, what is quantum physics? And then you don't have to talk the rest of the flight. It's <laughs> like two hours down and, uh, you know, he's, he's explaining it to me as best as he can, trying to dumb it down for like a theologian, basically. And then uh, toward the end of the flight, you know, I found it fascinating, actually. And toward the end of the flight, he asked me, as we're starting to descend, what do I do? And I said, almost apologetically, because he's such a genius, I'm a pastor. And then he looked at me and he, he, and he meant it. He was sincere. He said, oh, we need each other because science is coming closer and closer to spirit and faith, actually. And, and that's, in, in my short uh, theological version of quantum physics, that's what I'm here to tell you at a level, is uh, things are much more connected. Everything's much more connected than we actually realize. And uh, so the I win because you lose paradigm can give way to something better, actually. 
And this is really what Isaiah is talking about, a changing of the world order that is coming, but that is ours now to live into. And, and so there are three prophecies that uh, speak to Christ as the reconciler of all things. And we're going to look at each of these three prophecies this morning and see why each one is significant. The significance of the shoot coming from the stem, the significance of spirit-led judgment, and the significance of cosmic transformation. These three prophecies. Each one has something to say for us today. Uh, and so I'm glad you're here that we can uh, celebrate this together in Advent. So the first prophecy, the significance of a shoot coming from the stem, chapter 11, verse 1. The shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. What is that? Well, um, the, the word here for shoot is the Hebrew word netzer from which the word Nazareth is probably des- derived. And if you know a little bit about Jesus, you know he was born in Bethlehem, but th- that he actually grew up in, in Nazareth. So this is very interesting because th- this word netzer is this word shoot and it's the figure uh, so picture a tree's been cut down and, and Isaiah is saying that Israel is the tree being cut down. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But then out of this tree that's been cut down, a little sprout will come up and nobody's even gonna think about the sprout. It's insignificant. Netzer is a sprout coming out of a tree. We have a similar thing in the Pacific Northwest. I wanna show you one. Uh, this is a stump on my property and uh, out of the stump is coming Several, actually, new fir trees. You see them, right? Now, here's the deal. I never look at those trees. Like, when you're taking pictures, you don't take pictures of this, ever. You take pictures of big, majestic trees. You take pictures of snow-clad trees. You take pictures of mountains. You take pictures of vistas. Uh, But as I'm studying this uh, in Austria, I had to call my wife, Donna, and say, please go take a picture. I think we have a stump with some little trees and could you go take a picture of that? Because that's what this is. Like on our property, there are dozens of these little trees, if not hundreds. We never notice them, ever. Like you, you just, you don't, you don't go, they have no value, right? You think about what trees can you cut down that are big? You think about what trees can I use artistically to make candle holders? But you ignore these, right? There's nothing to them. That's Netzer. A little sprout out of a nurse log that is more than ignored in the Hebrew. It's even held in contempt in some sense. Like, whatever, who needs it, right? So here's the the thing. Isaiah is telling Israel that the tree that is their civilization is about to be cut down. The temple is going to be destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem are going to be broken down. A third of people die by famine. A third by plague. (coughs) Another multitude will become casualties of war. Only a tiny remnant will be spared. They'll be hauled off to captivity in Babylon. So, like, life as you know it, boom, it's about to be over, right? I think of uh, post-World War II Germany, for example, where uh, uh, in Dachau, the Americans come in to liberate this concentration camp in a suburb of Munich. They see the emaciated bodies. So they go into the houses of the neighbors and they force all the neighbors to walk through and see the prisoners, the emaciated bodies, the disease, the death. And when, when the Germans see this, it's, the, it's, this, it's this log cutting down. It's like your civilization is over. Look what you did. People are throwing up. Some people went home from that tour and committed suicide. It was unbelievable. Total loss, 
Total devastation. I think of a man who literally threw up as he confessed his infidelity to his wife. He was hoping, praying for this kind of moment of reconciliation. She was so angry, she threw something at him and started swearing, get out, I never want to see you again. Like his world just collapsed, right? I think of my dad dying when I was 17, ensuing depression, ensuing health challenges. Everyone in the room has had trees cut down in our lives. Like we wake up one morning and life's different. Cancer? Foreclosure, unemployment, loss of a child, loss of a parent. Tree's gone. And then, out of the devastation that is this kind of rotting log, a shoot springs forth. Netzer, ah, whatever, nothing. Uh, Somebody sees it, it's hardly worth noticing. Hardly worth paying attention to. Nazareth came from the same word. Jesus was Netzer. And it's significant because the prophecy here is counterintuitive. The prophecy is saying, yes, it's just a seemingly insignificant root, but in fact, it's not insignificant at all. all. The root is going to change everything. In John 1, um, Philip has encountered Christ, and he becomes one of the disciples ultimately. Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, hey, Come see Jesus from Nazareth. He's the fulfillment of all, everything we've been waiting for. And then, I mean, Philip's classic line. I love this line. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, why would he say that? Well, you got to know a little bit about Nazareth, right? So (coughs) Nazareth is this hill town high up off the main roads at the foot of the mountains. And so it's not on I-90. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not, on, it's not on Highway 2. It's not even on Highway 20, which is close. It's not Marble Mount. Marble Mount's on the way to somewhere beautiful, right? Snoqualmie Pass is on the way to somewhere. Even Yakima is on the way to somewhere beautiful. <laughs> like Nazareth, even Fresno. Like I grew up in Fresno, which is gross. I hate to say it. <laughs> Hot, smoggy, bullet holes in my bedroom, Right? But, big sign, gateway to Yosemite. Like, that's our boast. We're on the way to something better. Yeah. (laughs) Great mission statement, right? (laughs) Don't worry, it gets better, kind of thing. Well, Nazareth isn't even on the way to anywhere. It's dead end. No one goes there. And so, because no one goes there, it's a bit provincial and and, and, uh, a bit uneducated. Um, it's, in other words, like it's a meaningless shoot. So, so Nathaniel's kind of vision is, hey, someone from Nazareth, not even worth knowing. Like, what can he offer me? Let me, tell, let me tell you why this is a significant prophecy. It's significant because transformation comes out of the ashes of loss, often in our lives. But we got to pay attention because it comes from unlikely places. We need a new lens to which to consider what's significant and insignificant in our lives. We're often looking for the big moment, right? Like with, you know, the camera and the lights and the amazing tear-jerking story and the, and the, and the, and the, and the film and the, and the background music. We want our life to be like a Hallmark movie. No. It doesn't work that way. The most significant stuff that happens, like it starts out of nothing. So we got to pay attention to, to the little stuff. Kind of the nothing days. That's where hope is being born. 
But when it's being born, it doesn't even look like hope. It's just a thing. And I, what I'm saying is when there's that little opportunity to serve in a shelter, that, that little opportunity to forgive your spouse, that little opportunity to say to your spouse after you threw something and swore at him and said, never come back, to call him on the phone and say, I'm willing to go to one counseling session. That's the shoot. That's the shoot, right? That next step, that, that, that moment when we take a step toward hope, when there's a little light in, in the back of a wardrobe and we go through, that's what God's calling us to. Because out of the German collapse came a little shoot, like a collective commitment on the part of the German people to care for the least of these, which to be blunt has served them well to this day. This man who threw up at confession of infidelity, his wife did call him, one session, and then I'll decide if we keep going. And he went. He was tired. He fought traffic. He wondered why he was there. And even when he left, he didn't realize the significance of what had happened. But that one session was the, kind of the soil out of which healing and reconciliation began and their marriage better than ever. Wow. Little shoot. Out of out of the death of my dad and depression, a single encounter with a believer while I was studying architecture got me involved in a ministry. A shred of hope. It changed my life. It changed everything for me. So if the tree is cut down for you right now, I'm telling you, by virtue of God's faithfulness, a shoot will come forth. God won't abandon you. And the shoot is the presence of Christ, but not often does it come with trumpets, fanfare, copious tears, profound revelation. Often, it comes out of nothing. Zechariah 4.10, don't despise the day of small things. Really, really important. I have another buddy, kind of another marriage story, actually. He was a Vietnam vet. And uh, his wife had come to Christ. He wanted nothing to do with it. And then uh, they were drifting apart Divorce seemed imminent. And uh, she asked him before they threw in the towel with their marriage, you know, as a favor, would, they, would he go to one session of counseling to shoot, right? And he was like this, yeah, I'll go, I'll go to one. But he, he was a tricky guy. Like he knew how to manipulate people psychologically with eye contact and all this Jedi stuff. So like he kind of came in totally defensive, saying, I'm just going to do this and I'm going to leave her. And kind of, so this, he shares his story with me. The counseling goes on. It's a 45-minute session. At, the, at like minute 40, uh, the counselor says something. And I can't remember what it was that he said. But he said something. And my buddy, who has like layers of armor, he just started sobbing. He just started sobbing. From minutes, like awkward minutes. And we caught his breath. He, this is what he said, life isn't working for me. And then he, he came to Christ. And the marriage restored. Shoot. One session. Hey, pay attention. Because there's shoots all around us. But they're netzer. It's eye contact with somebody. 
It's saying yes to um, your spouse's request to be forgiven. It's turning the TV off and saying, can we have a real conversation? It's turning the lights out at 9 p.m. and lighting candles. Netzer. Yeah, ah, Netzer. No, no, this is where Christ shows up. So second prophecy, the significance of spirit-led judgment, verses two through five. The spirit of the Lord will rest on this one, Christ. Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. Couple observations. Christ, in his, Christ coming as judge, that's not a bad thing, actually, as we'll see. But Christ's judgment, it says here, Christ is guided by the fear of the Lord. And this simply means that the final righteousness of God is not uh, uh, some sort of peacemaking initiative where God sits down with uh, humanity and negotiates a deal. This is not the art of the deal. This is not, this is not compromise. This is, this is not somebody giving something to get something. Uh, this isn't based on what appears to be good for everybody. This isn't based on aligning with uh, humanity's desires or trying to get reelected or anything like this. This is God. So this is God's perfect will. And, and so when God's judgment is done, here's the point of judgment. Sweeping away all wickedness in order that what God had in mind might flourish and thrive. That's why God brings judgment. Who wouldn't want judgment under those terms? Sweeping away all wickedness in order that what God wants to thrive could thrive. Yeah, that's Jesus. And when Jesus then wants to bring judgment into my life, I'd actually do well to pay attention. Because what all he's wanting to do is sweep away whatever it is for me, my lust, my greed, my cynicism, my complacency, my fear, so that what is in me that is Christ, hope, justice, mercy, wisdom, strength, can flourish. That's a good thing. And, and, and here's the thing. What we know from this text is if there's something in me that needs to be swept away, eventually it's going to be swept away. So better to deal with it now because the pain of judgment escalates. Does this make sense? Like I used to say to my kids, hey, I'm disciplining you now, but if I don't discipline you, then your teacher will. Or like if you don't receive it from me, then your teacher will discipline. And if you don't receive it from them, then later your employer is gonna do it. And if it's not your employer, it's gonna be the cops someday, right? So better that you receive it from me now than the cops then. And this is what God is saying. Hey, judgment is coming. So if God wants to change your sexual ethic, your consumer choices, your relationship with money, your relationship with your enemies, now's the time. Align with God's judgment because it's coming. Then, the other thing we see that I love is God's judgment is uh, with a scalpel, not a chainsaw. And what I mean by that is God judges each one of us uniquely because each one of us are in unique need of transformation. Does that make sense? And this is not, how, this is not the world in which we live. We live in a world where there are semantic arguments about 
uh, how to provide s solutions for the systemic problems of culture, and the problems are chainsaw solutions that we're offering, right? In other words, let's talk about, just for a moment, poverty and homelessness. What's the answer? Well, if, you, if you're on the left, here's the answer. There's a corrupt system that's oppressing people. People aren't making enough money. We've got to change the minimum wage. We've got to provide, you know, housing regulations, rent control. And we're going to fix it by intervening in the system because everyone is basically good, and as long as you're a good system, everyone thrives. The right says, ho, 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 no, that's not true at all. The problem is people are lazy. Like, come on, if a man doesn't work, what? It's in the Bible, right? man doesn't work, he doesn't, does anyone know? Eat. Get a job. So then we, you know, we throw a tract out the window with the guy sitting there at the freeway and tell him to go, go find a job. And so he, it's two solutions to one problem. Oh, it's laziness. Oh, it's the system. What's the answer? Yes and no is the answer. Because within every human heart, the, 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 there's a reality that we, living in a fallen world, there's a victim piece of me, a victim of the system. And within every human heart, there's something in me that doesn't want to do the right thing. And so the beauty of God's judgment is God addresses systemic stuff and personal stuff because what needs to be addressed? Both. Not one or the other. And here we are arguing up here and God is saying, no, the only way you can care for people is to care for individuals because every individual needs to be judged on the basis of their own situation and Christ does that. And so can we as we shepherd one another. We live in this moment of Immense cynicism when even the belief that righteousness could be possible seems incredible. And we don't know what news to believe. And we don't know what to buy. And we, and we can't help wondering if we buy anything if we're not contributing to global poverty and environmental destruction. And, and yet, we know this. This perfectly just world is coming where everyone has enough. Enough food, enough shelter, enough companionship, enough love, enough insure, uh, 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 assurance for the future so that, so that there's this sense of safety and, and community. Isaiah has a picture of a feast with everyone from every nation gathered on a big table with the best wine and the best food. And it doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your income, your education. Everyone is whole. Man, I look forward to that day. So why is this prophecy significant that Christ is bringing judgment? Because all, when we, listen, when any of us in the room are longing for justice, and we all are, then we're longing for this future world where everyone has enough. We're, we're longing for Christ's return. We're, we're actually longing for Christ. And so we have to, A, let God bring judgment to our own hearts, so that our lives are aligned with God's values, and then B, embrace our calling to embody in some small way now this ethic, because we are citizens not of this world, but of the world that is coming. That's our, that's our citizenship. We talk about the future. I'm convinced we don't embody it enough. <laughs> and when I was in Friday Harbor, uh, and some of you have heard this story, been here a while, but it's so appropriate here. I used Isaiah to create a tract that we distributed at the county fair. And it was, the, it was my best idea ever, right? Um, because it was like, Friday Harbor's very new agey, you know, and uh, there was this gal there 
with a lot of horses and visions and stuff and crystals hanging in her windows. And she was kind of a famous new age person. And so people would flock there for revelation. And so it was very new age at the time. So I, I, this is my track on the front picture, kind of this Peter Max psychedelic uh, uh, fluorescent art with the phrase, there's a new age coming. Now who wouldn't want to read that, right? That's amazing. And then you open it and it says, hey, imagine a world in which, uh, you know, weapons are melted down and turned into tools of agriculture. Imagine a world in which uh, there's no more predatory prey relationships among the animals. Imagine a world in which there's no more homelessness, no more poverty, no more addiction, no more loneliness. No more war. Imagine. You know, imagine. John Lennon. And then, <laughs> open the next page. Everything that I said is the fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. And I was just expecting people to open, the, oh, new age. Oh, exactly what I want. Oh, Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Come into my heart, right? It didn't happen. Like people would read it and as soon as I got to Isaiah, they were like this, whatever. And then I go, man, I wonder why people just hate us so much. There's a bunch of reasons, but I think the, the, clue, <laughs> the clue came from the last guy, the last guy. He comes and he reads the whole thing. And then when he opens to the Isaiah stuff, he goes, really? And I had a Bible there and he read every passage. We spent an hour together. At the end, he says, this is what Christ is about? Who knew? Yeah, this is it. You want in? He says, well, I kind of do, but first I have some questions. You say Jesus uh, is about uh, uh, providing for people who have needs. There's homelessness on the island. What are you guys doing to address it? Nah, nothing. How about hunger? You know, a lot of people are living... It's an expensive place. People are hungry. There's free lunches at the school. Are you guys even talking about that? What are you doing to address hunger? Uh, actually, we're not doing anything. Like, what, are you do, what are you doing to address uh, the fact that there are so many people who come here uh, as kind of the last stop and they have no social safety net? Are you, uh, what are you doing to build community? Well, you know, actually, um, we sing good songs. I preach. And this is what he said. Yeah, I thought so. He drops it and walks away. I want to tell you something. That changed me forever. Because let me, let me just, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. If you think this is church, you're missing it, friends. This, what we do here on Sunday is a gathered community. It's good, it's powerful, it's significant. This is not church. We had an interview up here. Look, driving uh, like a, a bus to provide shelter, that's church, Right? Providing food for the hungry, that's church. Volunteering in a mobile medical clinic, that's church. Doing economic empowerment in Rwanda, that's church. Being the first across social divides, that's church. Tutoring your neighbors, that's church. Breaking down every wall, class, gender, economics, race, that's church. Bringing into this present moment what Christ has promised will come fully later, that's church. And if you're bored... With church, it's probably because you just sit. Because the only way, the only way to be in God's story is to be a channel of God's blessing using your gifts in some significant way. And if that isn't happening for you, it's not church for you. 
That's why it's significant, the second prophecy. Because God invites us to paint a picture of a better world <laughs> today. Third, there's a cosmic transformation coming. And so we read this mysterious verse, verse 6. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the goat. And a, can you imagine the cow and the bear grazing together? No. This passage, again in Friday Harbor, was problematic for a friend of mine who was a biologist. He was interested in Christianity, but he could not get over this. And he said, if this is literal, I'm not sure I can, I can believe. Is it literal? Is it poetic? I don't, th I don't think we know, actually. So when, I, when I'm reading my Bible and there's, what, there's questions and there's things I don't know, then I ask the question, well, what do I know? What can I know from this passage? And here's what I know. When history ends, I know this, Ephesians 1.11, when history ends, every atom in the universe is saturated with the glory of Christ. And that, there's a cosmic transformation embedded in that. And when that happens, that transformation, hinted at in verses 6 or 9, brings an end to every predator-prey relationship. And what that means is the end to all hostilities. Because remember, predator-prey relationships don't only exist in the animal kingdom, they exist in humanity in, all over the place, Right? between rich and poor, between white and black. In, all, in every way, there's predator-prey relationships. There's haves and have-nots. There's winners and losers. And in Christ's return, in one cosmic moment, all that's swept away, it's gone. And now, there's enough for everyone. And so we can't fathom this world without predatory-prey relationships. But my response is this. God is able to do abundantly beyond all you can ask, hope, or what? Even fathom, Ephesians chapter 3. Like beyond your scientific capacity to understand is this. Let me tell you why this is significant. Even though the future is beyond understanding, it's that that we long for. It's that that we long for. Like when we watch National Geographic stuff, something kind of resonates in us when the mama monkey is hugging the baby monkey and, and they're kissing and... And, you know, when the swans are monogamous and all that stuff. We love that stuff. And then, like, we send our kids out of the room when, you know, the lion attacks the gazelle or whatever. We just are like, no, no, no. We, like, we don't want that world. That's our world. I'm, you know, I'm studying this and listening to Christmas music. Classic King FM, like, podcast thing in Austria, and Oh Holy Night comes on just as in this. And there's that haunting phrase, in his name all oppression shall cease. And I've just been listening to NPR, sexual slavery, still nerve gas in Syria, the murder of journalists, people living with literally nobody on their team trapped in homelessness, the predatory prey relationships that have become sexuality, that have become politics, that have become uh, business, <laughs> the predatory nature of cancer. And, and something shouts, no, we're not made for any of this. And Jesus knew that. The shortest verse in the Bible, John 11, J Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus, tears of anger. This is not the life for which we're created. Death, separation, loss. We long for wholeness. 
We long for community. We long for intimacy. We long for peace. We long for enough. And what we long for, when we long for <clears throat> all of that, is we long for Christ. We long for Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. So we need to reframe the conversation in Christianity. It needs to be a different conversation. My friend Eric over here sent me a podcast while I was over in Europe to listen to. And uh, I, was, I didn't listen to it the whole time I was in Europe. And then I got home Tuesday night. And the way jet lag affects me anyway is I woke up at like 3.30 Wednesday morning. And <coughs> so I had my coffee and my devotions. And I have this weird block of free time because nobody wants to meet with me at four in the morning for some reason. <laughs> and so, oh, I'll listen to the podcast, whatever. It's a, <coughs> excuse me, it's like a root out of a stump. It's just a, so that I can say to Eric, I listen to it. You know what I mean? You ever do that? Pardon me, I'm coughing. And what happened was ridiculous. This guy is talking and I wrote down what he wrote or what he said. This is a pastor. <clears throat> I believe that before I die, the church will be known around the world in a completely new form. The era of the church being known for judgment <clears throat> and condemnation or legalism and conformity will come to an end. The church will become the human epicenter for creativity, beauty, and wonder. And I added, and hope, <clears throat> justice, joy, generosity. That's the way it is. That kind of lit my fire, actually. <coughs> and um, so I wrote in my journal this. What if we, Bethany make it our goal to reframe Seattle's understanding of Christianity. Because we're not well thought of. Do you know that? Away from the reputation as wed to politics and vocal with polarized infighting. What if instead we strategically and actively let our light shine so that through intentional living and teaching and community service, we openly and publicly declare that Christ is inviting us to ways that are not of this world? Why? Because the paradigms of consumerism and nationalism and political posturing and competition leave us hollowed out and hungry for peace and meaning and joy. And the good news of the gospel is that God's kingdom offers a better way. The way of the lion lying down with the lamb. It's a better way. It's not consumerism and creativity. It's not lust but love. Not fear but courage. Not hate but kindness. Not greed but generosity. Not competition, but cooperation. Not being served, but serving. Not individualism, but community. Not slavery to the paradigms of this world, but freedom from all that enslaves, all that destroys, all that incites fear and greed. What if we help people see how Christ changes everything? Spirit, soul, body, intimacy, calling, creativity, culture, neighborhood, cities, environment, nations, globe, cosmos. What if we don't just open our doors and say, hey, you're welcome to come in. What if we actively, strategically go out into our city and embody a kingdom that the world is thirsty for, but they don't even know that Christ is the answer. Like, what if we did that? 
You know what? I could get up every morning for the next 30 years doing that until I die. Because that's what it means to be the church. And so, as we close this, I'll just say, how is it that the lion lies down with the lamb? How is it that the predatory prey relationships end? Like how, like how does that happen? And can it happen in any small measure all around us here? Yeah, it can. Because here's how it happens. In that day, it says they won't hurt or destroy. Why? Because the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord. People suddenly know Christ is the source of the reconciling power that all of us are hungry for. That's our calling. Not to come and sit, but to pour out. And we're going to work on this. We're going to work on this. We've got a meeting in January. The lead pastors, we're going to have a day of prayer about this. But I'm going to ask you to pray now. I'm going to ask you right now to pray. And if you're in, and you want to be the presence of reframing faith in Seattle, I just want you to, in your little prayers things, say, yeah, I'm in, and then pray for our leaders. Take a minute. Pray. Groups of two, groups of three, groups of four. Pray that we will reframe the understanding of faith for our city. Okay? Go ahead. Now, I mean it. Do it. This is how we close, and then, and then we have a song. Let's pray together. As we uh, close our prayer time, I'll invite you to, uh, if you would, uh, come up and, and if you want to write prayers, would you just pray for our leaders and ask that God would give us spirit-anointed vision to lead us into this calling to, to reframe Christianity in our city. It's a big thing, desperately needed, and we need uh, nothing less than the anointing of the Holy Spirit to live into that calling. Let's worship together. Thank you so much.